the sound of the great horn of Helm rang out. That okay? Now, absolutely not. All right, somebody go ahead and clip that. <laughs> My voice broke. No. <laughs> No! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Everybody, welcome back. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories, and this is Lord of the Rings, which means, well, this right here is Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love right now. We're heading into chapters seven and eight. Um, so let's talk a little bit of review, shall we? In chapters uh, one through six, uh, we begin with the departure of Boromir. Uh, Boromir departs uh, in the form of his death. Boromir has died, um, setting off sort of the events of this second book um, at the very end of book one. We are sort of with the fellowship as it is beginning to split up. Um, uh, there's there's a, this big event kind of in the forest and uh, between Boromir acting strangely about the ring and uh, all of the indecision about which way to head next, they're attacked. The fellowship of the ring is sundered and the different pieces of it go in their different directions. We have not heard from Sam and Frodo since they left on their own with the ring. No, we've mostly been following Merry and Pippin, or Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, um, as the as the three of them follow Merry and Pippin. Um, as we proceed through the book, uh, we find that Merry and Pippin have been carried off by a bunch of orcs who are all in kind of disagreement. It seems that Saruman and Sauron are somewhat at odds. They've got crossed purposes right now, and we're finding that that might be working to the advantage of those forces of good that live in the world. Um, as we sort of bounce back and forth between what happened with Merry and Pippin and what is happening with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli as they follow this trail, um, finally, Merry and Pippin are freed. After an encounter with the Riders of Rohan, uh, they head into the forest and are met with a bunch of Ents, uh, and the Ents decide, you know what, we've had just about enough of Saruman's treachery. We're marching off to war, even if it is the last time. Finally, we follow Aragorn, uh, Gimli, and Legolas as they meet an old friend. Why, it is Gandalf. Gandalf the White, who gives an account of his great battle with the Balrog and how he has been sent back as Gandalf the White to finish his duties here. The four of them, Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, head into Rohan. They meet with the king there, who is uh, has sort of been uh, advised into a depression by uh, a treacherous advisor having been bought by Saruman. Uh, but Gandalf brings the king out of it, and King Theoden of Rohan is back on the warpath against those forces of evil that have already delved too far into his lands. We ride now to Helm's Deep a greater place at which to defend the lands of Rohan against the encroachment of Saruman's forces. And that is where we begin our adventure today. Ride. Ride, Erlingus. Rohirrim. Ride.
Chapter 7 Helm's Deep The sun was already westering as they rode from Edoras, and the light of it was in their eyes, turning all the rolling fields of Rohan to a golden haze. There was a beaten way, northwestward along the foothills of the White Mountains, and this they followed, up and down in a green country, crossing small, swift streams by many fords. Far ahead and to their right the misty mountains loomed, Ever darker and taller they grew as the miles went by. The sun went slowly down before them. Evening came behind. The host rode on. Need drove them. Fearing to come too late, they rode with all the speed that they could, pausing seldom. Swift and enduring were the steeds of Rohan, but there were many leagues to go. Forty leagues and more it was, as a bird flies, from Edoras to the fords of Eisen where they hoped to find the king's men had held back the hosts of Saruman. Night closed about them. At last they halted to make their camp. They had ridden for some five hours and were far out upon the western plain, yet more than half of their journey still lay before them. In a great circle under the starry sky and the waxing moon, they now made their bivouac. They lit no fires, for they were uncertain of events, but they set a ring of mounted guards about them, and scouts rode out far ahead, passing like shadows at the folds of the land. The slow night they passed without tidings or alarm. At dawn the horns sounded, and within the hour they took to the road again. There were no clouds overhead yet, but a heaviness was in the air. It was hot for the season of the year. The rising sun was hazy, and behind it, Following it slowly up to the sky, there was a growing darkness, as of a great storm moving out of the east. And away in the northwest, there seemed to be another darkness brooding about the feet of the misty mountains, a shadow that crept down slowly from the wizard's veil. Gandalf dropped back to where Legolas rode beside Eomer. You've got the keen eyes of your fair kindred, Legolas, he said. And they can tell a sparrow from a finch a league off. Tell me, can you see anything away yonder toward Isengard? Many miles lie between, said Legolas, gazing thither and shading his eyes with his long hand. I can see a darkness. There are shapes moving in it, great shapes far away along the bank of the river. But what they are I cannot tell. It is not a mist or cloud that defeats my eyes. There is a veil shadow that some power lays upon the land, and it marches slowly downstream. It is as if the twilight under endless trees were flowing downward from the hills. And behind us comes a very storm of Mordor, said Gandalf. It will be a black night. As the second day of their riding drew on, the heaviness in the air increased. In the afternoon, the dark clouds began to overtake them, a somber canopy with great billowing edges flecked with dazzling light. The sun went down, blood red in a smoking haze. The spears of the riders were tipped with fire as the last shafts of light kindled the steep faces of the peaks of Thrihirn. Now very near, they stood on the northernmost arm of the White Mountains, three jagged horns staring at the sunset. In the last red glow, men in the vanguard saw a black speck, a horseman riding toward them. They halted and awaited him. He came, 
a weary man with dinted helm and cloven shield. Slowly he climbed from his horse and stood there a while, gasping. At length he spoke. Is Aomer here? he asked. You come at last, but too late, and with too little strength. Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. We were driven back yesterday over the Eisen with great loss. Many perished at the crossing. And then at night, fresh forces came over the river against our camp. All Isengard must be emptied, and Saruman has armed the wild hillmen and the herdfolk of Dunland beyond the rivers. And these also he loosed upon us. We were, we were overmastered. The shield wall was broken. Erkenbrand of Westfold has drawn off those men that he could gather toward the fastness in Helm's Deep. The rest are scattered. Where is Eomer? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to Edoras before the wolves of Isengard come here. Theoden had sat silent, hidden from the man's sight behind his guards. Now he urged his horse forward. Come! Stand before me, Kjarl, he said. I am here. The last host of the Erlingus has ridden forth. It will not return without battle. The man's face lightened with joy and wonder. He drew himself up, and then he knelt, offering his notched sword to the king. Command me, lord, he cried, and pardon me. I thought that... You thought I remained in Medisheld. "'bent like an old tree under winter snow. "'And so it was when you rode to war. "'But the west wind has shaken the boughs,' said Theoden. "'Give this man a fresh horse. "'Let us ride to the help of Erkenbrand.' "'While Theoden was speaking, Gandalf rode a short way ahead, "'and he sat there alone, gazing north to Isengard "'and west to the setting sun. "'Now he came back. "'Ride, Theoden,' he said. Ride to Helm's Deep. Go not to the forge of Eisen, and do not tarry in the plain. I must leave you for a while. Shadowfax must bear me now on a swift errand. Turning to Aragorn and Eomer, and the men of the king's household, he cried, Keep well the Lord of the Mark till I return. Await me at Helm's Gate. Farewell. He spoke a word to Shadowfax, and like an arrow from the bow, the great horse sprang away. Even as they looked, he was gone. A flash of silver in the sunset, a wind over the grass, a shadow that fled and passed from sight. Snowmane snorted and reared, eager to follow, but only a swift bird on the wing could have overtaken him. What does that mean? said one of the guard to Hama. That Gandalf Greyhame has need of haste, answered Hama. Ever he goes and comes unlooked for. Wormtongue, were he here, would not find it hard to explain, said the other. True enough, said Hama. But for myself, I will wait until I see Gandalf again. Maybe you will wait long, said the others. The host turned away now from the road to the fords of Eisen and bent their course southward. Night fell, and still they rode on. The hills drew near, but the tall peaks of Thrihirn were already dim against the darkening sky. Still some miles away, on the far side of the Westfold Vale, lay a great green coombe, a 
great bay in the mountains, out of which a gorge opened in the hills. Men of that land called it Helm's Deep, after a hero of old wars who made his refuge here. Ever steeper and narrower it wound inward from the north under the shadow of the Thrihirn, till the crow-haunted cliffs rose like mighty towers on either side, shutting out the light. At Helm's Gate, before the mouth of the deep, there was a heel of rock thrust outward by the northern cliff. There upon its spur stood high walls of ancient stone, and within them was a lofty tower. Men said that in the far-off days of glory of Gondor, the sea kings had built here this fastness with the hands of giants. The Hornburg, it was called, for a trumpet sounded upon the tower, echoed in the deep behind, as if long-forgotten armies were issuing to war from caves beneath the hills. A wall, too, the men of old had made from the Hornburg to the southern cliff, barring the entrance to the gorge. Beneath it, by a wide culvert, the deeping stream passed out. About the feet of the horn rock it wound, and flowed then into a gully through the mist in a wide green gore, sloping gently down from Helm's Gate to Helm's Dyke. Thence it fell into the deeping coombe and out into the Westfold Vale. There in the Hornburg at Helm's Gate, Erkenbrand, master of the Westfold on the borders of the Mark, now dwelt. As the days darkened with threat of war... Being wise, he had repaired the wall and made the fastness strong. The riders were still in the low valley before the mouth of the coombe when cries and horn blasts were heard from their scouts that went out in front. Out of the darkness, arrows whistled. <laughs> Swiftly, a scout rode back and reported that wolf riders were abroad in the valley and that a host of orcs and wild men were hurrying southward from the fords of Eisen and seemed to be making for Helm's Deep. "'We have found many of our folk lying slain as they fled hither,' said the scout. "'And we have met scattered companies going this way and that, leaderless. "'And what has become of Erkenbrand, none seem to know. "'It is likely he will be overtaken ere he can reach Helm's Gate, if he has not already perished.' "'Has aught been seen of Gandalf?' asked Theoden. "'Yes, Lord. Many have seen an old man in white upon the horse.' "'passing hither and thither over the plains like wind in the grass. "'Some thought that he was Saruman. "'It is said he went away ere nightfall toward Isengard. "'Some say also that Wormtongue was seen after, "'going northward with a company of orcs. "'It will go ill with Wormtongue "'if Gandalf comes upon him in Theoden. "'Nonetheless, I miss now both of my counsellors, "'the old and the new.' But in this need we have no better choice than to go on, as Gandalf said, to Helm's Gate, whether Erkenbrand be there or no. Is it known how great the host that comes from the north? It is very great, said the scout. He that flies counts every foeman twice, yet I have spoken to stout-hearted men, and I do not doubt the main strength of the enemy is many times as great as all that we have here. Then let us be swift said Eomer. Let us drive through such foes that are already between us and the fastness. There are caves in Helm's Deep where hundreds may lie hid, and secret ways lead thence into the hills. Trust not to secret ways, said the king. Saruman has long spied on these lands. Still in that place our defense may last long. Let us go. Aragorn and Legolas went now with Eomer in the van, on through the dark night they rode, ever slower as the darkness deepened and their way climbed southward, higher and higher into the dim folds about the mountain's feet. 
They found few of the enemy before them. Here and there they came upon roving bands of orcs, but they fled ere the riders could take or slay them. It will not be long, I fear, said Eomer, ere the coming of the king's host will be known the leader of our enemies, Saruman or whatever captain he has sent forth. The rumor of war grew behind them. Now they could hear, borne over the dark, the sound of harsh singing. They had climbed far up into the deeping coom when they looked back. Then they saw torches of countless points of fiery light upon the black fields behind, scattered like red flowers or winding up from the lowlands in long, flickering lines. Here and there a larger blaze leapt up. It is a great host that follows us. Hard, said Aragorn. They bring fire, said Theoden. And they are burning as they come. Rick, cot, and tree. This was a rich vale, and many homestead were in it. Alas for my folk. Oh, the day was here, we might drive them down like a storm out of the mountains, said Aragorn. It grieves me to fly before them. We do not need to fly much further, said Eomer. Not far ahead now lies Helm's Dyke. An ancient trench and rampart scored across the combe. Two furlongs below Helm's Gate. There we can turn and give battle. Nay, we are too few to defend the dike, said Theoden. It is a mile long or more, and the breach in it is wide. At the breach our rearguard must stand if we are pressed, said Eomer. There was neither star nor moon when the riders came to the breach in the dike, where the stream from above passed out and the road beside it ran down from Hornburg. The rampart loomed suddenly before them, a high shadow beyond a dark pit. As they rode up, a sentinel challenged them. "'The Lord of the Mark rides to Helm's Gate,' Eomer answered. "'I, Eomer, son of Eomond, speak.' "'This is good tidings beyond hope,' said the sentinel. "'Hasten, the enemy is on your heels.' The host passed through the breach and halted on the slope sward above. They now learned to their joy that Erkenbrand had left many men to hold Helm's Gate, and more had since escaped thither. Maybe we have a thousand fit to fight on foot, said Gambling, an old man and leader of those that watched the dike. But most of them have seen too many winters, as I have, or too few, as my son's son here. What news of Erkenbrand? Word came yesterday that he was retreating thither with all that's left of the best riders of Westfold. But he has not come. I fear that he will not come now, said Eomer. Our scouts have gained no news of him, and the enemy fills all the valley behind us. I would that he had escaped, said Theoden. He was a mighty man. In him lived again the honor of Helm, the Hammerhand. But we cannot await him here. We must draw all of our forces now behind the walls. Are you well stored? We bring little provisions, for we rode forth to open battle, not to a siege. Behind us in the caves of the deep are three parts of the folk of Westfold, old and young, children and women, said Gambling. But great store of food, and many beasts and their father have also been gathered there. That is well, said Eomer. They are burning or despoiling all that is left in this vale. 
If they came to bargain for our goods at Helm's Gate, they would pay a price. A high one, said Camling. The king and his riders passed on. Before the causeway that crossed the stream, they dismounted. In a long file, they led their horses up the ramp and passed within the gates of the Hornburg. There they were welcomed again with joy and renewed hope, for now there were men enough to man both the burg and the barrier wall. Quickly, Eomer set his men in readiness. The king and the men of his household were in the Hornburg, and there also were many men of the Westfold. But on the deeping wall and its tower and behind it, Eomer arrayed most of the strength that he had, for here the defense seemed more doubtful, if the assault was determined and in great force. The horses were led far up the deep, under such guard as could be spared. The deeping wall was twenty feet high, and so thick that four men could walk abreast along the top, sheltered by a parapet over which only a tall man could look. Here and there were clefts in the stone through which men could shoot. This battlement could be reached by a stair, running down from the door in the outer court of the Hornburg. Three flights of steps led also up onto the wall from the deep behind, but in front it was smooth, and the great stones of it were set with such skill that no foothold could be found in their joints, and at the top they hung over like a sea-delved cliff. Gimli stood leaning against the breastwork upon the wall. Legolas sat above on a parapet, fingering his bow and peering out into the gloom. "'This is more to my liking,' said the dwarf, stamping on the stones. "'Ever my heart rises as we draw near the mountains. There is good rock here.' This country has got tough bones. I felt them in my feet as we came up from the dike. Give me a year and a hundred of my kin and I would make this a place that armies would break upon like water. I do not doubt it, said Legolas. But you are a dwarf, and dwarves are strange folk. I do not like this place, and I shall like it no more by the light of day. But you comfort me, Gimli, and I am glad to have you standing nigh on your stout legs and your hard axe. I wish there were more of your kin among us, but even more would I give for a hundred good archers of Mirkwood. We shall need them. The Rahiram have good bowmen after their fashion, but there are too few here. Too few. It is dark for archery, said Gimli. Indeed, it is time for sleep. Sleep! I feel the need of it as I have never thought that any dwarf could. Riding is tiring work, yet my axe is restless in my hand. Give me a row of orc necks and room to swing, and all the weariness will fall from me. A slow time passed. Far down in the valley, scattered fires still burned. The hosts of Isengard were advancing in silence now. Their torches could be seen winding up the coombe in many lines. Suddenly from the dike, yells and screams, and the fierce battle cries of men broke out. Flaming brands appeared over the brink and clustered thickly at the breach. Then they scattered and vanished. Men came galloping up over the field and up the ramp to the gate of the Hornburg. The rear guard of the Westfolders had been driven in. "'The enemy is at hand,' they said. We loosed every arrow we had and filled the dike with orcs. But it did not halt them long. Already they are scaling the bank at many points, thick as marching ants. But we have taught them not to carry torches. It was now past midnight. The sky was utterly dark and the stillness of the heavy air foreboded storm. 
Suddenly the clouds were seared by a blinding flash. Branched lightning smote down upon the eastward hills. For a staring moment the watchers on the walls saw all the space between them and the dike lit with white light. It was boiling and crawling with black shapes, some squat and broad, some tall and grim, with high helms and sable shields. Hundreds and hundreds more were pouring over the dike and through the breach. The dark tide flowed up to the walls from cliff to cliff. Thunder rolled in the valley. Rain came lashing down. Arrows thick as the rain came whistling over the battlements and fell clinking and glancing on the stones. Some found a mark. The assault on Helm's Deep had begun, but no sound or challenge was heard within. No answering arrows came. The assailing hosts halted, foiled by the silent menace of rock and wall. Ever and again the lightning tore aside the darkness, and the orcs screamed, waved sword and spear, and shooting clouds of arrows at any that stood revealed upon the battlements, and the men of the mark, amazed, looked out, as it seemed to them upon a great field of dark corn tossed by a tempest of war, and every ear glinted with barbed light. Brazen trumpets sounded. The enemy surged forward, some against the deeping wall, others against the causeway and the ramp that led up to the Hornburg gates. There the largest orcs were mustered, and the wild men of the Dunland Fells. A moment they hesitated, and then they came. The lightning flashed, and blazing upon every helm and shield, the ghastly hand of Isengard was seen. They reached the summit of the rock. They drove toward the gates. Then at last an answer came. A storm of arrows met them and a hail of stones. They wavered, broke, and fled back, and then charged again, broke, and charged again, and each time, like the oncoming sea, they halted at a higher point. Again, trumpets rang, and a press of roaring men leapt forth. They held their great shields above them like a roof, while in the midst they bore two trunks of mighty trees. Behind them, orc archers crowded, sending a hail of darts against the bowmen on the walls. They gained the gates. The trees, swung by strong archers, smote the timbers with a rending boom. If any man fell, crushed by stone hurtling from above, two others sprang to take his place. Again and again, the great rams swung and crashed. Eomer and Aragorn stood together on the deeping wall. They heard the roar of voices and the thudding of the rams, and then in a sudden flash of light they beheld the peril of the gates. "'Come,' said Aragorn. "'This is the hour where we draw swords together.' Running like fire, they sped along the wall and up the steps and passed out to the greater court upon the rock. As they ran, they gathered a handful of stout swordsmen. There was a small postern door that opened at the angle of the berg wall to the west, where the cliff stretched out to meet it. On that side, a narrow path ran round toward the great gate, between the wall and the sheer brink of the rock. Together, Eomer and Aragorn sprang through the door, their men close behind. The swords flashed from the sheath as one. "'Good wine!' cried Eomer. "'Good wine for the mark!' real cried Aragorn. Anduril for the Dunedain! Charging from the side, they hurled themselves upon the wild men. Anduril rose and fell, gleaming with white fire. A shout went up from the wall and the tower. Anduril! Anduril goes to war! The blade that was broken shines again! 
dismayed, the rammers let fall the trees and turned to fight. But the wall of their shields was broken as by lightning stroke, and they were swept away, hewn down or cast over the rock into the stony stream below. The orc archers shot wildly, and then fled. For a moment, Eomer and Aragorn halted before the gates. The thunder was rumbling in the distance now. The lightning flickered still, far off among the mountains in the south. A keen wind was blowing from the north again. The clouds were torn and drifting, and stars peeped out, and above the hills of the Coombe side the westering moon rode, glimmering yellow in the storm rack. "'We did not come too soon,' said Aragorn, looking at the gates. Their great hinges and iron bars were wrenched and bent. Many of their timbers were cracked. "'Yet we cannot stay here beyond the walls to defend them,' said Eomer. "'Look!' he pointed to the causeway. Already a great press of orcs and men were gathering again beyond the stream. Arrows whined, skipped on the stones between them. Come, we must get back now and see what we can do to pile stone and beam across the gates within. Come, now! They turned and ran. At that moment, some dozen orcs that had lain motionless among the slain leapt to their feet and came silently and swiftly behind. Two flung themselves to the ground at Eomer's heels, tripped him, and in a moment they were on top of him. But a small, dark figure that none had observed sprang out of the shadows and gave a hoarse shout. An axe fell and swept back. Two orcs fell headless. The rest fled. Eomer struggled to his feet, even as Aragorn ran back to his aid. The postern door was closed again. The iron door was barred and piled inside with stones. When all were safe within, Eomer turned. "'I thank you, Gimli, son of Gloin,' he said. "'I did not know that you were with us in the sortie, "'but oft the unbidden guest proves the best company. "'How came you there?' "'I followed ye to shake off sleep,' said Gimli. "'But I looked upon the hillmen, and they seemed over-large for me, "'so I sat beside a stone to see your sword play.' "'I shall not find it easy to repay you,' said Eomer. Be a chance yet ere the night is over, <laughs> laughed the dwarf. But I am content. Until now, I've hewn naught but wood since I left Moria. Two, said Gimli, patting his axe. He had returned to his place on the wall. Two, said Legolas. I have done better, though now I must grope for spent arrows. All of mine are gone. Yet I make my tale twenty at least, but that is only a few leaves in a forest. The sky now was quickly clearing, and the sinking moon was shining brightly. But the light brought little hope to the riders of the mark. The enemy before them seemed to have grown rather than diminished. Still more were pressing up from the valley through the breach. The sortie upon the rock gained only a brief respite. The assault on the gates was redoubled. Against the deeping wall, the hosts of Isengard roared like a sea. Orcs and hillmen swarmed about its feet from end to end. Ropes with grappling hooks were hurled over the parapet faster than men could cut them or fling them back. Hundreds of long ladders were lifted up. Many were cast down in ruin, but many more replaced them, and orcs sprang up like apes in the dark forests of the south. Before the wall's foot, the dead and broken were piled like shingle in a storm. Ever higher rose the hideous mounds, and still the enemy came on. The men of Rohan grew weary. 
All of their arrows were spent, every shaft was shot, their swords were notched, and their shields were riven. Three times Aragorn and Eomer rallied them, and three times Andoril flamed in a desperate charge that drove the enemy from the wall. And then a clamor arose behind them in the deep wall. Orcs had crept like rats through the culvert through which the stream flowed out. There they had gathered in the shadow of the cliffs until the assault above was hottest, and nearly all the men of defense had rushed to the wall's top. Then they sprang out. Already some had passed into the jaws of the deep and were among the horses, fighting with the guards. Down from the wall leapt Gimli with a fierce cry that echoed in the cliffs. Kazad! Kazad! He soon had work enough. Ay ay! He shouted, The orcs are behind the wall! Ay ay! Come, Legolas, there are enough for us both! Hasad Aymanul! Gambling the old looked down from the hornberg, hearing the great voice of the dwarf among the tumult. The orcs are in the deep! He cried. Helm! Helm! Forth Helmingus! He shouted as he leapt down the stair from the rock with many men of Westfold at his back. Their onset was fierce and sudden, and the orcs gave way before them. Ere long they were hemmed in to the narrows of the gorge, and all were slain or driven, shrieking into the chasm of the deep to fall before the guardians of the hidden caves. Twenty-one! cried Gimli. He hewed a two-headed stroke down and laid the last orc before his feet. Now my coat passes Master Legolas again! We must stop this rat hole, said Gimli. Dwarves are said to be cunning folk with stone. Lend us your aid, master. We do not shape stone with battle axes, nor with our fingernails, said Gimli. But I will help what I may. They gathered such small boulders and broken stones as they could find at hand, and under Gimli's direction the Westfold men blocked up the inner end of the culvert, until only a narrow outlet remained. Then the deeping stream, swollen by the rain, turned and fretted upon its choked path and spread slowly in cold pools from cliff to cliff. It will be drier up above, said Gimli. Come, Gimling, let us see how things go on the wall. He climbed up and found Legolas beside Aragorn and Eomer. The elf was wetting his long knife. There was for a while a lull in the assault, since the attempt to break into the culvert had failed. Twenty-one, said Gimli. Good, said Legolas. My count is now two dozen. It has been knife work up here. Eomer and Aragorn leant wearily on their swords. Away on the left, the crash and clamor of the battle on the rock rose loud again. But the Hornburg still held fast, like an island in the sea. Its gates lay in ruin but over the barricade of beams and stones no enemy had yet passed. Aragorn looked at the pale stars and at the moon now sloping behind the western hills that enclosed the valley. This night is as long as years, he said. How long will the day tarry? Dawn is not far off, said Gambling, who had now climbed up beside him. But dawn will not help us, I fear. Yet dawn was ever the hope of men, said Aragorn. But these creatures of Isengard, these half-orcs and goblin men, and the foul craft of Saruman as bred, they will not quail at the sun, said Gamling. 
and neither will the wild men of the hills. Did you not hear their voices? I heard them, said Eomer, but they are only the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts to my ears. Yet there are many that cry in the Dunland tongue. I know that tongue, said Gambling. It is an ancient speech of men, and was once spoken in many western valleys of the mark. Hark! They hate us, and they are glad, for our doom seems certain to them. The king, the king, they cry. We will take their king, death to the Forgoil, death to the Strawheads, death to the robbers of the north. Such names they have for us. Not in half a thousand years have they forgotten their grievance that the lords of Gondor gave the mark to Eorl the young and made an alliance with him. That old hatred Saruman has inflamed. They are fierce folk when roused. They will not give way now, for dusk or dawn, until Theoden is taken, or they themselves are slain. Nevertheless, day will bring hope to me, said Aragorn. It is not said that no foe has ever taken the Hornburg if men defended it. So the minstrels say, said Eomer. Then let us defend it and hope, said Aragorn. Even as they spoke, there came the blare of trumpets. Then there was a crash and a flash of flame and smoke. The waters of the deeping stream poured out, hissing and foaming. They were choked no longer. A gaping hole was blasted in the wall. A host of dark shapes poured in. Devilry of Saruman, cried Aragorn. They've crept in the culvert again while we talked, and they've lit the fire of Orthanc beneath our feet. Elendil! Elendil! he shouted as he leapt down into the breach, but even as he did so, a hundred ladders were raised against the battlements. Over the wall and under the wall, the last assault came sweeping like a dark wave upon a hill of sand. The defense was swept away. Some of the riders were driven back, further and further into the deep, falling and fighting as they gave way, step by step, toward the caves. Others cut their way back and toward the citadel. A broad stairway climbed from the deep up to the rock and the rear gate of the Hornburg. Near the bottom stood Aragorn. In his hand, still Anduril gleamed, and the terror of the sword for a while held the enemy back, as one by one all who could gain the stair passed up toward the gate. Behind on the upper steps knelt Legolas. His bow was bent, but one gleaned arrow was all that he had left, and he peered out now, ready to shoot the first orc that should dare to approach the stair. All who can have now got safe within, Aragorn he called. Come back. Aragorn turned and sped up the stair, but as he ran, he stumbled in his weariness. At once, his enemies leapt forward. Up came the orcs, yelling with their long arms stretched out to seize him. The foremost fell with Legolas's last arrow in his throat, but the rest sprang over him. Then a great boulder, cast from the outer wall above, crashed down upon the stair and hurled them back into the deep. Aragorn gained the door, and swiftly it clanged to behind him. Things go ill, my friends, he said, wiping the sweat from his brow with his arm. Ill enough, said Legolas, but not yet hopeless, while we still have you with us. Where is Gimli? I do not know, said Aragorn. I last saw him fighting on the ground behind the wall, but the enemy swept us apart. Alas, that is evil news, said Legolas. He is stout and strong, 
said Aragorn. Let us hope that he will escape back to the caves. There he would be safe for a while, safer than we. Such a refuge would be to the liking of a dwarf. That must be my hope, said Legolas, but I wish he had come this way. I desire to tell Master Gimli that my tale is now thirty-nine. If he wins back to the caves, he will pass your count again, laughed Aragorn. Never did I see an axe so wielded. I must go and seek some arrows, said Legolas. Would that this night would end, so I could have better light for shooting. Aragorn now passed into the citadel. There, to his dismay, he learned that Eomer had not reached the Hornburg. Hey, he did not come to the rock, said one of the Westfold men. I last saw him gathering men about him and fighting in the north of the deep. Gambling was with him and the dwarf, but I could not come to them. Aragorn strode on through the inner court and mounted a high chamber on the tower. There stood the king, dark against a narrow window, looking out upon the vale. What is the news, Aragorn? he said. The deeping wall is taken, lord, and all the defense is swept away, but many have escaped hither to the rock. Is Aemir here? No, lord, but many of your men retreated into the deep, and some say Aemir was amongst them. In the narrows they may hold back the enemy and come from within the caves. What hope they may have there I do not yet know. More than we. Good provision, it is said, and the air is wholesome there because of the outlets through fissures in the rock far above. None can force an entrance against determined men. They may hold out long. But the orcs have brought a devilry from Orthanc, said Aragorn. They have got a blasting fire, and with it they took the wall. If they cannot come in the caves, they may seal up those that are inside. But now... We must turn all of our thoughts to our own defence. I fret in this prison, said Theoden. If I could set a spear in rest, riding before my men upon the battlefield, maybe then I could have felt that joy, and so ended. But I serve little purpose here. Here at least you are guarded in the strongest fastness of the mark, said Aragorn. More hope we have to defend you in the Hornburg than in Edoras, or even at Dunharrow in the mountains. It is said that the Hornburg has never fallen to assault, said Theoden. But now my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? Had I known that the strength of Isengard had grown so great, maybe I should not have so rashly ridden forth to meet it for all the arts of Gandalf. His counsel seems now not so good as it did under the morning sun. Do not judge the counsel of Gandalf until all is over, Lord, said Aragorn. The end will not be long, said the king. But I will not end here. Taken like an old badger in the trap, Snowmane and Hasselfell, and the horses of my guard are in the inner court. When dawn comes, I will bid men sound the helm's horn, and they shall ride forth. Will you ride with me, then, son of Arathorn? Maybe we shall cleave a road, or make such an end as will be worth a song, if any should be left to sing of us hereafter. I will ride with you, said Aragorn. 
Taking his leave, he returned to the walls, and passed round all their circuit, enheartening the men and lending aid wherever the assault was hot. Legolas went with him. Blasts of fire leapt up from below the shaking stones. Grappling hooks were hurled, and ladders raised. Again and again the orcs gained the summit of the outer wall, and again the defenders cast them down. At last Aragorn stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. As he looked forth, he saw the eastern sky grow pale. Then he raised his empty hand, palm outward in a token of parley. The orcs yelled and jeered. "'Come down! Come down!' they cried. "'If you wish to speak to us, come down. Bring out your king. We are the fighting Orukai!' We will fetch him from his hole if he does not come. Bring out your skulking king. The king stays or comes at his own will, said Aragorn. Then what are you doing here? They answered. Why do you look out? Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? We are the fighting Urkai. I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. What of the dawn? <laughs> they jeered. We are the fighting Urukai. We do not stop the fight for day or night, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? None knows what the new day shall bring him, said Aragorn. Get you gone, ere it turns for your evil. Get down or we will shoot you from the wall, they cried. This is no parley. You have nothing to say. I still have this to say, answered Aragorn. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. Depart or not one of you shall be spared. Not one will be left alive to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone among the ruined gates before the host of his enemies that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley, and some looked up doubtfully at the sky. But the orcs laughed with loud voices, and a hail of darts and arrows whistled over the wall as Aragorn leapt down. There was a roar and a blast of fire. The archway of the gate, above which he had stood a moment before, crumbled and crashed in smoke and dust. The barricade was scattered as if by a thunderbolt. Aragorn ran to the king's tower. But even as the gate fell and the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge, a murmur rose up behind them, like a wind in the distance, and it grew to a clamor of many voices crying strange news in the dawn. The orcs upon the rock, hearing the rumor of dismay, wavered and looked back. And then, sudden and terrible from the tower above, the sound of the great horn of Helm rang out. All that heard the sound trembled. Many of the orcs cast themselves on their faces and covered their ears with their claws. Back from the deep the echoes came, blast upon blast, as if in every cliff and hill a mighty herald stood. But on the walls men looked up, listening in wonder, for the echoes did not die. Ever the horn blasts wound upon the hills, nearer now and louder they seemed to one another, blowing fierce and free. Help! 
Helm, the riders called. Helm is a reason that comes back to war! Helm for Thayden King! And with that shout, the king came. His horse was white as snow, golden was his shield, and his spear was long. At his right hand was Aragorn, Elendil's heir. Behind him rode the lords of the house of Errol the Young. Light sprang in the sky. Night departed. With a cry and a great noise, they charged. Down from the gates they roared. Over the causeway they swept, and they drove through the hosts of Isengard as a wind among the grass. Behind them, from the deep, came the stern cries of men issuing from the caves, driving forth the enemy. Out poured all the men that were left upon the rock, and ever the sound of blowing horns echoed in the hills. On they rode, the king and his companions. Captains and champions fell or fled before them. Neither orc nor man withstood them. Their backs were to the swords and spears of the riders, and their faces to the valley. They cried and wailed, for fear and great wonder had come upon them at the rising of the day. So King Theoden rode from Helm's Gate and clove his path to the great dyke. There the company halted. Light grew bright about them. Shafts of the sun flared above the eastern hills and glimmered on their spears. But they sat silent on their horses, and they gazed down at the deep ingoom. The land had changed. Where before the green dale had lain, its grassy slopes lapping ever-mounting hills, now a forest loomed. Great trees, bare and silent, stood rank on rank with tangled bough and hoary head. Their twisted roots were buried in the long green grass. Darkness was over them. Between the dike and the eaves of that nameless wood, only two open furlongs lay. There now cowered the proud hosts of Saruman, in terror of the king and terror of the trees. They streamed down from Helm's Gate until all above the dike was empty of them, but below it they were packed like swarming flies. Vainly they crawled and clamored about the walls of the coombe, seeking to escape. Upon the east, too sheer and stony was the valley's side, and upon the left, from the west, their final doom approached. There suddenly upon the ridge appeared a rider, clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the low hills the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot. Their swords were in their hands. Amid them strode a man tall and strong. His shield was red. As he came to the valley's brink, he set to his lips a great black horn and blew a ringing blast. <laughs> Arkenbrand! the riders shouted. Arkenbrand! Behold the white rider, called Aragorn. Gandalf is come again! Mithrandir! Mithrandir! said Legolas. This is wizardry indeed. Come, I would look upon this forest ere the spell changes. The hosts of Isengard roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. Again the horn sounded from the tower. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
Down through the breach of the dike charged the king's company. Down from the hills leapt Urkenbrand, lord of Westfold. Down leapt Shadowfax like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was upon them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell upon their faces before him. The orcs reeled and screamed, and cast aside both sword and spear. Like a black smoke driven by the mountain wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees, and from that shadow, none ever came again. Ayo, there is the first of our two chapters for this evening. Everybody, if you want to hear chapter eight, The Road to Isengard, hang around. I'm going to take a quick five-minute break. Just got to rest my voice for just a second, and then when we come back, we are reading chapter eight. Feel free to hang out and chat here. We are going to talk a little bit amongst ourselves. I have got a chatter break question for you. Chatter break, of course, um, you know, time between chapters. Get a bit of a chapter break, get a little chatter break in. I want to know from all of you all, uh, well, Proteus Fate is saying, okay, so hot take, I prefer how the movie did this, which you may know is almost identical, but I feel replacing Aomer's imprisonment with exile, and therefore replacing Urkenbrand with Aomer, was a smart narrative move. It, I, I think that it was, yes. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's continue with this theme of, um, uh, you know, kind of the defenses of Helm's Deep as our Chatterbreak question. Um, put yourself in the position of some of these characters here, uh, especially the King of Rohan. Um, in this position, what is right for him to do? And how do you feel that he and the rest of sort of the leadership of these kingdoms has performed so far? So there's my Chatterbreak question. And I will see you all in five minutes. Just a moment. Bye-bye. All right, my good folks, welcome back. Okay, are you ready to jump on into our next chapter? Let's talk about this Chatterbreak question for a second here. Let's have a little chit-chat. Um, Pretty Spade says, um, that's a whole thing. In Lord of the Rings, what's right and what's smart are very different things. Orly Rose says, I think that Theoden is in an intensely difficult place. Wormtongue has been uh, slipping poison in his ear for a long time, and as soon as he's free of that, all that was threatened has indeed come to pass. His people are dying, and his unassailable fortress has been breached. The fact that he fights strongly and valiantly in the face of what seems to be sure defeat has always amazed me. Um, and yeah, it does. I mean, there is a lot of bravery on offer from these folks. Um, but it is bravery that has sort of slept for a long time, isn't it? And that seems to be true of of a lot of this world, right? It seems to be, you know, the as, as we sit in kind of the the old ruins of some former glory... Um, or at least what we understood to be former glory. Uh, now, as evil looms, as uh, you know, people want to uh, accumulate power, like Saruman and Sauron, um, as they wish for the power to to subjugate and control. Only now, as as it has gotten, frankly, darn near too late. Only now, 
do people sort of wake up and and rouse that bravery that's sitting inside them someplace? JT says, Theoden's also facing the potential end of his whole line. Indeed, which, you know, it, it, there's always the... Um, uh, the the sort of discussion of, of lineage and and leadership there he has made provisions for that right if if none of his line come back go ahead and uh, choose for yourselves a new king as you may um, uh, so there's, there's a little bit of chaos there but yeah it is it is something to be said that Theoden is sort of looking at a a lineage that by frankly by his own inattentiveness of course aided on by pretty dark forces but by his own inattentiveness at certain points um might might cause the the fall of of everything <laughs> that he has known in his life but if you can't remain on the defense and hiding out isn't what's right then what does that leave us and indeed an excellent question uh Soph says he decided somewhere to value being someone who his ancestors would be proud of over just survival um and yeah i think that is that's important you know keep in mind he is He's fighting for, um, when they talk about what they're fighting for, and this is, I think, the last thing that we'll say about this one. When when he talks about what they're fighting for, there is occasional mention of sort of, uh, you know, doing the old legends proud. You know, uh, Aragorn talks about that a little bit, a little bit, um, or at the very least talking about the legends that he comes from and sort of how they how they would sort of look upon the current days. But the thing that, kind of impresses me is it's always about the future for most of these folks when Theoden talks about what he's doing and why he's doing it he doesn't say so that uh, you know the the halls of my fathers will stand ever in uh in you know Matadras where have you uh, the meadow cell excuse me it's more that songs will be sung of him I think there's something of, of glory to that. Yes, there's a sort of, you know, there's there's that sort of ring of vanity always when, when people talk about songs being sung of themselves. But I do think that there's a part of it that these songs are not simply accounts of things that have happened in the past. They're also cries of hope. This discussion of, like, Helm the Hammerhand, this isn't just somebody who built a really good fort. It's not like a brand you know, they're, they're not excited to be here because they've got a, a sweet Sherman tank and they, they, they love Sherman for that. When they hear of, of, of the name of Helm Hammerhand, they are hearing something of their past coming forward to defend them. They're hearing of the defense that their past had. Um, and so as they fight, they fight for their futures. They fight for the futures, and I think Theoden, you know, in, in spite of the, the ring of vanity that always comes with talking of songs being sung of you, I think there's an element, too, of let me do something that will bring hope to those who come after me. If nothing else, hope. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to win. But it will be enough that songs will be sung and bring hope to those who come after me. That's who I'm fighting for. That's why I'm fighting. And that's why I don't insist on winning. It's why I insist on doing everything I can. Y'all go ahead, continue to chat in chat about this. I see Proteus Spade has got some ideas. Uh, I always like hearing from Proteus Spade on these things. Um, everybody, uh, as I said, Gems, happy birthday to you. And uh, for you good folks who have stuck with me here, thank you so much. Let's talk a 
you know, 30 seconds of review, and then we're heading into chapter eight, the road to Isengard. We find ourselves here um, as the battle has come to a head. We're not talking about skirmishes anymore like we've seen so many times so far in these books. No, this is the this is a true battle. Orcs are on the move. Forces larger than people could have imagined have been amassing right kind of underneath their noses. Isengard, here very close to Rohan, or even within Rohan, I can't remember precisely the geography, um, uh, but, but Ro, uh, uh, Isengard, right under the nose of Rohan, has uh, been kind of amassing forces of orcs and humans. Other orcs are attacking from out of Mordor, and now is the time where they must defend against it. We are at Helm's Deep. This is a basically a castle, um, uh, and this castle, this fortress, is the most defensible place in all of Rohan. They've got what's left of the kingdom of Rohan that's not scattered across the countryside or dead and burned in their homes. They've got them gathered here. And they do battle. And as of the very end of this chapter, between the return of uh, Erkenbrand, sort of one of the lost commanders of the army, um, the return of Gandalf, now it seems the battle may be won. Let's read our next chapter, shall we? Chapter 8 The Road to Isengard So it was that in the light of a fair morning, King Theoden and Gandalf the White Rider met again upon the green grass beside the deeping stream. There was also Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and Legolas the Elf, and Urken Bran of the Westfold, and the lords of the Golden House. About them were gathered the Rohirrim, the Riders of the Mark. Wonder overcame their joy in victory, and their eyes were turned toward the wood. Suddenly there was a great shout, and down from the dike came those who had been driven back into the deep. There came Gamling the Old, and Eomer, son of Eomond, and beside them walked Gimli the Dwarf. He had no helm, and about his head was a linen band stained with blood, but his voice was loud and strong. Forty-two, Master Legolas, he cried. Alas, my axe is notched. The forty-second had an iron collar on his neck. How goes it with you? You have passed my score by one, answered Legolas, but I do not grudge you the game. So glad am I to see you on your legs. Welcome, Eomer, sister son, said Theoden. Now I see that you are safe. I am glad indeed. Hail, Lord of the Mark, said Eomer. The dark night has passed and day has come again, but the day has brought strange tidings. He turned and gazed in wonder, first at the wood and then at Gandalf. "'Once more you come in hour of need, unlooked for,' he said. "'Unlooked for?' said Gandalf. "'I said that I would return and meet you here.' "'But you did not name the hour, nor foretell the manner of your coming. 
Strange help you bring. You are mighty in wizardry, Gandalf the White. That may be. But if so, I have not shown it yet. I have but given good counsel in peril, and made use of the speed of Shadowfax. Your own valor has done more, and the stout legs of the Westfold's men marching through the night. Then they all gazed at Gandalf with greater wonder still. Some glanced darkly at the wood, and passed their hands over their brows, as if they thought their eyes saw otherwise than his. Gandalf laughed long and merrily. <laughs> the trees, he said. Nay, I see the wood as plainly as you do, but that is no deed of mine. It is a thing beyond the counsel of the wise, better than my design, and better even than my hope the event has proved. If not yours, then whose is the wizardry? said Theoden. Not Saruman's, that is plain. Is there some mightier sage of whom we have yet to learn? It is not a wizard, but a power far older, said Gandalf. A power that walked on earth ere elf sang or hammer rang. Ere iron was found or tree was hewn, when young was mountain under moon. Ere ring was made or rot was woe, it walked the forest long ago. "'And what may be the answer to your riddle?' said Theoden. "'If you would learn that, you shall come with me to Isengard,' answered Gandalf. "'To Isengard?' they cried. "'Yes,' said Gandalf. "'I shall return to Isengard, and those who will may come with me. "'There we shall see strange things.' "'But there are not men enough in the mark, "'not if we were all gathered together and healed of wounds and weariness "'to assault the stronghold of Saruman,' said Theoden. "'Nevertheless, to Isengard I go,' said Gandalf. "'I shall not stay there long. "'My way lies now eastward. "'Look for me in Edoras, ere the waning of the moon.' "'Nay,' said Theoden, "'in the dark hour before the dawn I doubt it, "'but we will not part now. "'I will come with you, if that is your counsel.' "'I wish to speak with Saruman as soon as may be now,' said Gandalf. "'and since he has done you great injury, "'it would be fitting if you were there. "'But how soon and how swiftly will you ride?' "'My men are weary with battle,' said the king, "'and I am weary also, "'for I have ridden far and slept little. "'Alas, my old age is not feigned, "'nor due only to the whisperings of Wormtongue. "'It is an ill that no leech can wholly cure, "'not even Gandalf.' "'Then let all who are to ride with me rest now,' said Gandalf. "'We will journey under the shadow of evening. "'It is as well, for it is my counsel that all of our comings and goings "'should be as secret as may be, henceforth. "'But do not command many men to go with you, Theoden. "'We go to a parley, not to a fight.' The king then chose men that were unhurt and had swift horses, and he sent them forth with tidings of the victory into every vale of the mark. And they bore his summons also, bidding all men, young and old, to come in haste to Edoras. There the lord of the mark would hold assembly of all that could bear arms on the second day after the full moon. To ride with him to Isengard, the king chose Eomer and twenty men of his household. With Gandalf would go Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. 
In spite of his hurt, the dwarf would not stay behind. It was only a feeble blow and the cap turned aside, he said. It would take more than such an orc scratch to keep me back. I will tend it while you rest, said Aragorn. The king now returned to the Hornburg and slept, such a sleep of quiet as he had not known in many years, and the remainder of his chosen company rested also. But the others, all that were not hurt or wounded, began a great labor, for many had fallen in battle and lay dead upon the field or in the deep. No orcs remained alive, their bodies were uncounted, but a great many of the hillmen had given themselves up, and they were afraid and cried for mercy. The men of the mark took their weapons from them and set them to work. Help now to repair the evil which you have joined, said Erkenbrand, and afterward you shall take an oath never again to pass the fords of Eisen in arms, nor to march with the enemies of men, and then you shall go free back to your land. For you have been deluded by Saruman. Many of you have got death as the reward of your trust in him, but had you conquered, little better would your wages have been. The men of Dunland were amazed, for Saruman had told them that the men of Rohan were cruel and burned their captives alive. In the midst of the field before the Hornburg, two mounds were raised, and beneath them were laid all the riders of the mark who fell in the defense, those of the East Dales upon one side and those of Westfold upon the other. In a grave, alone under the shadow of the Hornburg, lay Hama, captain of the king's guard. He fell before the gate. The orcs were piled in great heaps, away from the mounds of men, not far from the eaves of the forest. And people were troubled in their minds, for the heaps of carrion were too great for burial or for burning. They had little wood for firing, and none of them dared to take an axe to the strange trees, even if Gandalf had not warned them neither to hurt bark nor bough in their great peril. "'Let the orcs lie,' said Gandalf. "'The morning may bring new counsel.' In the afternoon, the king's company prepared to depart. The work of burial was then but beginning, and Theoden mourned for the loss of Hama, his captain, and cast the first earth upon his grave. "'Great injury indeed has Saruman done to me, and all this land,' he said, "'and I will remember it when we meet.' The sun was already drawing near the hills upon the west of the coombe, when at last Theoden and Gandalf and their companions rode down from the dike. Behind them were gathered a great host, both of the riders and the people of the Westfold, old and young, women and children who had come out from the caves. A song of victory they sang with clear voices. And then they fell silent, wondering what would chance, for their eyes had fallen on the trees, and they feared them. The riders came to the wood, and they halted. Horse and man, they were unwilling to pass in. The trees were gray and menacing, and a shadow of mist was about them. The ends of their long, sweeping boughs hung like searching fingers. Their roots stood up from the ground like the limbs of strange monsters, and dark caverns opened beneath them. But Gandalf went forward, leading the company, and where the road from the Hornburg met the trees, they saw now an opening like an arched gate under mighty boughs, and through it Gandalf passed, and they followed him. Then to their amazement they found that the road ran on, and the deeping stream beside it, and the sky was open above and full of golden light. 
But on either side, the great aisles of wood were already wrapped in dusk, stretching away into impenetrable shadows, and there they heard the creaking and groaning of boughs, and far cries, and a rumor of wordless voices murmuring angrily. No orc or other living creature could be seen. Legolas and Gimli were now riding together upon one horse, and they kept close beside Gandalf, for Gimli was afraid of the wood. It is hot in here, said Legolas to Gandalf. I feel a great wrath about me. Do you not feel the air throb in your ears? Yes, said Gandalf. What has become of the miserable orcs, said Legolas. That, I think, no one will ever know, said Gandalf. They rode in silence for a while, but Legolas was ever glancing from side to side and would often have halted to listen to the sounds of the wood if Gimli had allowed it. These are the strangest trees that I ever saw, he said, and I have seen many an oak grow from acorn to ruinous age. I wish that there were leisure now to walk among them. They have voices, and in time I might come to understand their thought. No, no, said Gimli. Let, let us leave them. I guess their thought already. Hatred of all that goes about on two legs and their speeches of uh, crushing and strangling. Not of all that goes on two legs, said Legolas. There I think you are wrong. It is orcs that they hate, for they do not belong here and know little of elves and men. Far away are the valleys where they have sprung up. From the deep dales of Fangorn, Gimli, that is whence they come, I guess. Then that is the most perilous wood in Middle-earth, said Gimli. I should be thankful for the part that they have played, but I do not love them. You may think them wonderful, but I have seen greater wonder in this land, more beautiful than any grove or glade that ever grew. My heart is still full of it. Strange are the ways of men, Legolas. Here they have... One of the marvels of the northern world, and what do they say of it? Caves! Caves! They say. Holes to fly into in time of war, to store father in. My good Legolas, do you know that the caverns of Helm's Deep are vast and beautiful? There would be an endless pilgrimage of dwarves merely to gaze at them, if such things were known to be. Aye, indeed, they would pay pure gold for a brief glance. And I would give gold to be excused said Legolas, and double to be let out if I strayed in. You have not seen, so I, I forgive your jest, said Gimli. But you speak like a fool. Do you think those halls to be fair where your king dwells under the hill in Mirkwood, and dwarves helped in their making long ago? They are but hovels compared to the caverns that I've seen here, immeasurable halls, filled with an everlasting music of water that tinkles into pools as fair as in that starlight. Oh, and Legolas, uh, when the torches are kindled and men walk on the sandy floors under the echoing domes, ah, then Legolas, gems and crystals and veins of precious ore glint in the polished walls, and the light glows through folded marbles, shell-like translucent in the living hands of Queen Galadriel. There are columns of white and saffron, and dawn rose, legolas, fluted and twisted in dream-like forms. They sprang up from many coloured floors to meet the glistening pendants on the roof. Wings, ropes, 
curtains of fine as frozen clouds, spears, banners, pinnacles of suspended palaces, still lakes mirror them. Oh, a glimmering world looks up from dark pools covered in clear glass cities. Such as the mind of Durin could scarce have imagined in his sleep. They stretch on through avenues and pillared courts, under the dark recesses where no light can come, and plink, a silver drop falls, and the round wrinkles in the glass make all the towers bend and waver like weeds and corals in the grottos of the sea. And then evening comes. They fade and twinkle out. The torches pass into one another's chambers as though through dreams. There is chamber after chamber, Legolas, hall opening out of hall, dome after dome, stair beyond stair, and still the winding paths lead into the mountain's heart. Caves. The caverns of Helm's Deep. Happy was the chance that drove me there. It makes me weep to leave them. Then I wish you this fortune in your comfort, Gimli, said the elf that you may come safe from war and return to see them again. But do not tell all of your kindred. There seems little left for them to do on your account. Maybe the men of this land were wise to say little. One family of busy dwarves with hammer and chisel might mar more than they made. No, 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 you, you do not understand, said Gimli. No dwarf could be unmoved by such loveliness. None of Durin's race would mine those caves for ore or stone, not if diamonds and gold could be got there. Do you cut down groves of blossoming trees in the springtime for firewood? We would tend these glades of flowering stone, not quarry them. With cautious skill, tap by tap, a small chip of rock, and no more, perhaps in a whole anxious day. So we could work, and as the years went by... We could open up new ways, and display far chambers that are still dark, glimpsed only as a void beyond fissures in the rock, and lights, like this we should make lights, such lamps as once shone in Khazad Doom, and when we wished we could drive away the night that has lain there since the hills were made, and when we desired rest, we would let the night return. You move me, Gimli, said Legolas. I have never heard you speak like this before. Almost, you make me regret I have not seen the caves. Come, let us make this bargain. If we both return safe out of the perils that await us, we will journey for a while together. You shall visit Fangorn with me, and I will come with you to see Helm's Deep. And that would not be the way of return that I should choose, said Gimli. But I, I will endure Fangorn, if I've got your promise to come back to the caves and share their wonder with me. You have my promise, said Legolas, but alas, now we must leave behind both cave and wood for a while. You see, we are coming to the end of the trees. How far is it to Isengard, Gandalf? About fifteen leagues, as the crows of Saruman make it, said Gandalf. Five from the mouth of Deepincombe to the falls, and ten more from there to the gates of Isengard. But we shall not ride all the way this night. And when we come there, what shall we see? asked Gimli. You may know, but I cannot guess. I do not know myself for certain, answered the wizard. I was there at nightfall yesterday, but much may have happened since. I think that you will not say that the journey was in vain. 
Not there the glittering caves of Aglarond will be left behind. At last the company passed through the trees, and found that they had come to the bottom of the coombe, where the road from Helm's Deep branched, going one way to Edoras and the other to the fords of Eisen. As they rode from under the eaves of the wood, Legolas halted and looked back with regret. Then he gave a sudden cry. There are eyes, he said, eyes looking out from among the boughs. I've never seen such eyes before. The others, surprised by his cry, halted and turned, but Legolas started to ride back. No! No! cried Gimli. Do as you please in your madness, but let me first get down from this horse. I wish to see no eyes. Stay, Legolas Greenleaf, said Gandalf. Do not go back into the wood, not yet. Now is not your time. And even as he spoke, there came forward out of the trees three strange shapes. As tall as trolls they were, twelve feet high or more in height, their strong bodies, stout as young trees, seemed to be clad with raiment or with hide of close-fitting gray and brown. Their limbs were long, and their hands had many fingers. Their hair was stiff, and their beards gray-green as moss. They gazed out with solemn eyes, but they were not looking at the riders. Their eyes were bent northwards. Suddenly they lifted their long hands to their mouths and sent forth ringing calls, clear as notes of horn, but more musical and various. The calls were answered, and turning again, the riders saw other creatures of the same kind approaching, striding through the grass. They came swiftly from the north, walking like wading herons in their gait, but not in their speed, for their legs and their long paces beat quicker than the herons' wings. The riders cried aloud in wonder, and some set their hands upon their sword hilts. There is no need for weapons, said Gandalf. These are but herdsmen. They are not enemies. Indeed, they are not concerned with us at all. So it seemed to be, for he spoke, and the tall creatures, without a glance at the riders, strode into the wood and vanished. Herdsmen, said Thadden, where are their flocks? What are they, Gandalf? For it is plain that to you, at any rate, they are not strange. They are the shepherds of the trees, answered Gandalf. It is so long since you listened to tales by fireside. There are children in your land who, out of the twisted threads of story, could pick the answer to your question. You've seen Ents, O King, Ents out of Fangorn Forest, which in your tongue you call the Entwood. Did you think that the name was given only an idle fancy? Nay, Theoden, it is otherwise. To them you are but the passing tale, all the years from Eorl the young to Theoden the older, of little count to them, and all the deeds of your house are but a small matter. The king was silent. Ants, hmm. he said at last, out of the shadow of legend I begin to, a little, understand the marvel of the trees, I think. The king was silent. Ants, he said at length, out of the shadows of legend I begin a little to understand the marvel of the trees, I think. I have lived to see strange days. Long we have tended our beasts and our fields built our houses, wrought our tools, or ridden away to help in the wars of Minas Tirith. And that we call the life of men, the way of the world. 
We cared little for what lay beyond the borders of our land. Songs we have that tell of these things, but we are forgetting them, teaching them only to children as, as a, a careless custom. And now the songs have come down among us, out of strange places, to walk visible under the sun. You shall be glad, Theoden King, said Gandalf, for not only the little life of men is now endangered, but the life also of those things which you have deemed the matter of legend. You are not without allies, even if you know them not. And yet also I should be sad, said Theoden, for however the fortune of war shall go, may it not so end that much that was fairer and wonderful shall pass forever out of Middle-earth. It may, said Gandalf. The evil of Sauron cannot wholly be cured, nor made as if it had never been. But to such days we are doomed. Let us now go on with the journey that we have begun. The company turned away then from the coombe and from the wood, and took the road toward the fords. Legolas followed reluctantly. The sun had set. Already it had sunk beyond the rim of the world. But as they rode out from the shadow of the hills and looked west to the gap of Rohan, the sky was still red, and a burning light was under the floating clouds. Dark against it there wheeled and flew many black-winged birds. Some passed overhead with mournful cries, returning to their homes among the rocks. "'The carrion fowl have been busy about the battlefield,' said Eomer. They rode now at an easy pace, and dark came now upon the plains about them. The slow moon mounted, now waxing toward the full, and in its cold silver light the swelling grasslands rose and fell like a wide gray sea. They had ridden for some four hours from the branching of the roads when they grew near to the fords. Long slopes ran swiftly down to where the river spread in stony shoals between high grassy terraces. Born upon the wind, they heard the howling of wolves. Their heart was heavy, remembering the many men that had fallen in battle in this place. The road dipped between rising turf banks, carving its way through the terraces to the river's edge, and up again upon the river's further side. There were three lines of flat stepping stones across the stream, and between them fords for horses, that went from either brink to the bare eot in the mist. The riders looked down upon the crossings, and it seemed strange to them. For the fords had ever been a place full of rush and chatter of water upon the stones, but now they were silent. The beds of the stream were almost dry, a bare waste of shingles and gray sand. This has become a dreary place, said Eomer. What sickness has befallen the river? Many fair things Saruman has destroyed. Has he devoured the springs of Eisen, too? So it would seem, said Gandalf. Alas, said Theoden, must we pass this way, or the carrion beasts devour so many good riders of the mark? This is our way, said Gandalf. Grievous is the fall of your men, but you shall see that at least the wolves of the mountains do not devour them. It is with their friends, the orcs, that they hold their feast. Such, indeed, is the friendship of their kind. Come. They rode down the river, and as they came, the wolves ceased their howling and slunk away. Fear fell on them, seeing Gandalf in the moon, and Shadowfax his horse shining like silver. 
The riders passed over to the islet, and glittering eyes watched them wanly from the shadows of the banks. Look, said Gandalf, friends have labored here. And they saw that in the midst of the Iat a mound was piled, ringed with stones, and set about with many spears. Here lie all the men of the mark that fell near this place, said Gandalf. Let them rest, said Eomer, and when their spears have rotted and rusted, still may their mound stand and guard the fords of Eisen. Is this your work also, Gandalf, my friend, said Theoden. You accomplished much in the evening and the night. With the hope of Shadowfax and others, said Gandalf, I rode fast and far. But here beside this mound I will say for your comfort, many fell in the battle of the fords, but fewer than rumour made them. More were scattered than were slain. I gathered together all that I could find. Some men I sent with Grimbold of Westfold to join Erkenbrand. Some I set to make this burial. They have now followed your marshal, Elfhelm. I sent him with many riders to Edoras. Saruman, I knew, had dispatched his full strength against you, and his servants had turned aside from all other errands and gone on to Helm's Deep. The land seemed empty of enemies, and yet I feared that wolf riders and plunderers might ride nonetheless to Meadowsild while it was still undefended. But now I think you need not fear. You will find your house to welcome your return. And glad shall I be to see it again, said Theoden, though brief now I doubt not shall my abiding there be. With that the company said farewell to the island and the mound, and passed over the river, and climbed the further bank. Then they rode on, glad to have left the mournful fords, as they went, the howling of the wolves broke out anew. There was an ancient highway that ran down from Isengard to the crossings. For some way it took its course beside the river, bending with it east and then north, but the last it turned away and went straight toward the gates of Isengard. And these were under the mountain's side in the west of the valley, sixteen miles or more from its mouth. This road they followed, but did not ride upon it, for the ground beside it was firm and level, covered for many miles about with short springing turf. They rode now more swiftly, and by midnight the fords were nearly five leagues behind. They then halted, ending their night's journey, for the king was weary. They were come to the feet of the misty mountains, and the long arms of Nan Cornir were stretched down to meet them. Dark lay the vale before them, for the moon had passed into the west, and its light was hidden in the hills. But out of the deep shadow of the dale rose a vast spire of smoke and vapor. As it mounted, it caught the rays of the sinking moon and spread in shimmering billows, black and silver, over the starry sky. "'What do you think of that, Gandalf?' asked Aragorn. "'One would say that all the wizard's veil was burning.' "'There is ever a fume above that valley in these days,' said Eomer. "'But I have never seen aught like this before.' These are steams rather than smokes. Saruman is brewing some devilry to greet us. Maybe he is boiling all the waters of Eisen, and that may be why the river runs dry. Maybe he is, said Gandalf. Tomorrow we shall learn what he is doing. Now let us rest for a while, if we can. They camped beside the bed of the Eisen River. It was still silent and empty. 
Some of them slept a little. But late in the night, the watchman cried out, and all awoke. The moon was gone. Stars were shining above, but over the ground there crept a darkness, blacker than the night. On both sides of the river it rolled toward them, going northward. Stay where you are, said Gandalf. Draw no weapons. Wait, and it will pass you by. A mist gathered about them. Above them a few stars still glittered faintly, but on either side there rose walls of impenetrable gloom. They were in a narrow lane between moving towers of shadow. Voices, they heard, whisperings and groanings and an endless rustling sigh. The earth shook under them. Long it seemed to them that they sat there and were afraid, but at last the darkness and the rumor passed and vanished beneath the mountain's arms. Away south upon Hornburg, in the middle of the night, men heard a great noise as a wind in the valley, and the ground trembled, and all were afraid, and no one ventured to go forth. But in the morning they went out and were amazed, for the slain orcs were gone, and the trees also. Far down into the valley of the deep the grass was crushed and trampled brown, as if giant herdsmen had pastured great droves of cattle there. But a mile below the dike a huge pit had been delved in the earth, and over it stones were piled into a hill. Men believed that the orcs whom they had slain were buried there, but whether those who had fled into the wood were with them, none could say, for no man ever set foot upon that hill. The death down, it was called afterward, and no grass would grow there. But strange trees were never seen in Deepingcombe again, they had returned at night and had gone far away to the dark dales of Fangorn. Thus they were revenged upon the orcs. The king and his company slept no more that night, but they saw and heard no other strange thing save one. The voice of the river beside them suddenly awoke. There was a rush of water hurrying down among the stones, and when it had passed the eisen flowed and bubbled its course again, as it had ever done. At dawn they made ready to go on. The light came gray and pale, and they did not see the rising of the sun. The air above was heavy with fog, and a reek lay on the land about them. They went slowly, riding now down upon the highway. It was broad and hard and well-tended. Dimly, through the mists, they could descry the long arm of the mountains rising on their left. They had passed into Nan Kurudnir, the wizard's vale. That was a sheltered valley, open only to the south. Once it had been fair and green, and through it the eisen flowed, already deep and strong before it found the plains, for it was fed by many streams and lesser streams among the rain-washed hills. And all about it there had lain a pleasant, fertile land. But it was not so now. Beneath the walls of Isengard there still were acres tilled by the slaves of Saruman, but most of the valley had become a wilderness of weeds and thorns. Brambles trailed upon the ground, or clambered over bush and bank, made shaggy caves where small beasts housed. No trees grew there, but among the rank grasses could still be seen the burned and axe-hewn stumps of ancient groves. It was a sad country. Silent now, but for the stony noise of quick waters. Smokes and steams drifted in sullen clouds and lurked in the hollows. The riders did not speak. Many doubted in their hearts, wondering to what dismal end their journey led. 
After that, they had ridden for some miles, and the highway became a wide street, paved with many flat stones, squared and laid with skill. No blade of grass was seen in any joint. Deep gutters filled with trickling water led down on either side. Suddenly, a tall pillar loomed up before them. It was black and set upon a great stone, carved and painted in the likeness of a long white hand. Its finger pointed north. Not far now, they knew the gates of Isengard must stand, and their hearts were heavy, but their eyes could not pierce the mists ahead. Beneath the mountain's arm, within the wizard's veil, through the years, uncounted, had stood that ancient place that men called Isengard. Partly it was shaped in the making of the mountains, but mighty works of the men of Westerness had wrought there of old, and Saruman had dwelt there long and had not been idle. This was its fashion, while Saruman was at his height, accounted by many the chief of wizards. A great ring wall of stone, like towering cliffs, stood out from the shelter of the mountainside, from which it ran and then returned again. One entrance only there was made in it, a great arch delved in the southern wall. There, through a black rock, a long tunnel had been hewn, closed at either end with mighty doors of iron. They were so wrought and poised upon their huge hinges, posts of steel driven into living stone, that when unbarred they could be moved with a light thrust of the arms, noiselessly. One who passed in and came the length out of the echoing tunnel beheld a plain, a great circle, somewhat hollowed like a vast shallow bowl, a mile it measured from rim to rim. Once it had been filled with avenues, it had been green. Groves of fruitful trees grew there, watered by streams that flowed down from the mountains to a lake. But no green things grew there in the latter days of Saruman. The roads were paved with stone flags, dark and hard, and beside their borders, instead of trees, there marched long lines of pillars, some of marble, some of copper and of iron, joined by heavy chains. Many houses there were, chambers, halls, and passages, cut and tunneled back into the walls upon their inner side, so that all the open circle was overlooked by countless windows and dark doors. Thousands could dwell there. Workers, servants, slaves, and warriors with great store of arms. Wolves were fed and stabled in deep dens beneath. The plain, too, was bored and delved. Shafts were driven deep into the ground. Their upper ends were covered by low mounds and domes of stones, so that in the moonlight the ring of Isengard looked like a graveyard of unquiet dead. For the ground trembled. The shafts ran down by many slopes and spiral stairs to caverns far under. There Saruman had treasuries, storehouses, armories, smithies, and great furnaces. Iron wheels revolved there endlessly, and hammers thudded. At night, plumes of vapor steamed from the vents, lit from beneath with red light, or blue, or venomous green. To the center, all the roads ran between their chains. There stood a tower of marvelous shape. It was fashioned by the builders of old, who smoothed the ring of Isengard, and yet it seemed a thing not made by the craft of men, but riven from the bones of the earth in the ancient torment of the hills. A peak and isle of rock it was, black and gleaming hard. Four mighty piers of many-sided stone were welded into one, but near the summit they opened into great gaping horns, their pinnacles sharp now as the points of spears, keen-edged as knives. Between them was a narrow place, and thereupon a floor of polished stone, written in strange signs, a man might stand five hundred feet above the plain. 
This was Orthanc, the citadel of Saruman, the name of which had, by chance or design, a twofold meaning. For in the elvish speech, Orthanc signifies Mount Fang, but in the language of the Mark of old, cunning mind. A strong place and wonderful was Isengard, and long it had been beautiful. And there great lords had dwelt, the wardens of Gondor upon the west, and wise men that watched the stars. But Saruman had slowly shaped it to his shifting purposes and made it better, as he thought, being deceived as he was for all of those arts and subtle devices for which he forsook his former wisdom and which he fondly imagined were his own came but from Mordor, so that what he made was not only a little copy, a child's model or a slave's flattery of that vast fortress, armory, prison, furnace of great tower, Barad-dur, the dark tower, which suffered no rival and laughed at flattery biding its time, secure in its own pride and its immeasurable strength. This was the stronghold of Saruman, as fame reported it, for within living memory the men of Rohan had not passed its gates, save perhaps a few, such as Wormtongue, who came in secret and told no man what they saw. Now Gandalf rode to the great pillar of the Hand, and passed it, and as he did so, the riders saw to their wonder that the hand appeared no longer white. It was stained as with dried blood, and looking closer they perceived that its nails were red. Unheeding, Gandalf rode into the mist, and reluctantly they followed him. All about them now, as if there had been a sudden flood, wide pools of water lay beside the road, filling the hollows, and trickling down amongst the stones. At last Gandalf halted and beckoned to them. And they came, and they saw that beyond him the mists had cleared, and a pale sunlight shone. The hour of noon had passed. They were come to the doors of Isengard. But the doors lay hurled and twisted to the ground, and all about stone cracked and splintered into countless jagged shards was scattered far and wide, or piled into ruinous heaps. The great arch still stood but it opened now upon a roofless chasm. The tunnel was laid bare, and through the cliff-like walls on either side great rents and breaches had been torn. Their towers were beaten into dust. If the great sea had risen in wrath and fallen upon the hills with storm, it could have worked no greater ruin. The ring beyond was filled with steaming water, a bubbling cauldron in which there heaved and floated a wreckage of beams and spars, chests and casks, broken gear. Twisted and leaning pillars reared their splintered stems above the flood. But all the roads were drowned. Far off, it seemed, half-veiled in winding cloud, there loomed the island rock. Still dark and tall, unbroken by the storm, the Tower of Orthanc stood. Pale waters lapped about its feet. The king and his company sat in silence on their horses, marveling, perceiving that the power of Saruman was overthrown, but how they could not guess. And now they turned their eyes to the archway and the ruined gates. There they saw close beside them a great rubble heap, and suddenly they were aware of two small figures lying on it at their ease, gray clad, hardly to be seen among the stones. There were bottles and bowls and platters laid beside them, as if they had just eaten well and now rested from their labor. 
One seemed asleep, the other with crossed legs and arms behind his head, leaning back against a broken rock, sent from his mouth long wisps and little rings of thin blue smoke. For a moment, Theoden and Eomer and all of his men stared at them in wonder. Amid the wreck of Isengard, it seemed to them the strangest sight. But before the king could speak, the small, smoke-breathing figure came suddenly aware of them. As they sat there, silent on the edge of the mist, he sprang to his feet. A young man he looked, or like one, though not much more than half a man in height. His head of brown, curling hair was uncovered, but he was clad in a travel-stained cloak of the same hue and shape as the companions of Gandalf had worn when they rode to Edoras. He bowed very low, putting his hand upon his breast. Then, seeming not to observe the wizard and his friends, he turned to Eomer the king. "'Welcome, my lords, to Isengard,' he said. "'We are the Door Wardens. Meriadoc, son of Saradoc, is my name, and my companion, who, alas, is overcome with weariness,' here he gave the other a little dig with his foot, "'is Peregrine, son of Paladin, of the house it took. Far in the north is our home, and the Lord Saruman is within, but at the moment he is closeted with his one worm tongue, or doubtless he would be here to welcome such honourable guests.' "'Doubtless he would,' <laughs> laughed Gandalf. "'And was it Saruman that ordered you to guard his damaged doors "'and to watch for the arrival of guests when your attention could be spared from plate and bottle?' "'No, good sir. The matter escaped him,' answered Mary gravely. "'He's been much occupied. "'Our orders come from Treebeard, who's taken over management of Isengard. "'He commanded me to welcome the Lord of Rohan with fitting words.' I've done my best. And what of your companions? What about Legolas and me? cried Gimli, unable to contain himself any longer. Ye rascals, you woolly-footed and wool-painted truants! A fine hunt you've led us, two hundred leagues, through fen and forest, battle and death to rescue you. And here we find you, feasting and idling and, and, and smoking! Smoking! Where did you come by the weed, you villains? Hammer and tongs! I'm so torn between joy and rage that if I do not burst, it will be a marvel. You speak for me, Gimli, <laughs> laughed Legolas, though I would sooner learn how they came by the wine. One thing you've not found out in your hunting, and that's brighter wits, said Pippin, opening his eye. Here you find us sitting on the field of victory amid the plunder of enemies, and you do wonder how we've come across a few well-earned comforts. Well-earned, said Gimli. I cannot believe that. The riders laughed. It cannot be doubted that we witnessed a meeting of dear friends, said Theoden. So these are the lost ones of your company, Gandalf. The days are fated to be filled with marvels already. I have seen many since I left my house. And now here before my eyes stand yet another of the folk of legend. Are not these the hobbits that some among us call the Hobbitlan? Hobbit, take it please, Lord, said Pippin. Hobbits, said Theoden, your tongue is strangely changed, but the name sounds not unfitting so. Hobbits, no report that I have heard does justice to the truth. Mary bowed and Pippin got up and bowed low. "'You are gracious, Lord. I, I hope that I may take your words so,' he said. "'And here's another marvel. I have wandered many lands since I've left my home, and never until now have I found people who knew any story concerning hobbits.' "'My people came out of the north long ago,' 
said Theoden. But I will not deceive you. We know no tales about hobbits. All that is said among us is that far away over many hills and rivers lie the halfling folk that dwell in holes and sand dunes. But there are no legend of their deeds, for it is said that they do little and avoid the sight of men, being able to vanish in a twinkling, and they can change their voices to resemble the piping of birds. But it seems more could be said. It could indeed, Lord, said Mary. For one thing, I had not heard that they spouted smoke from their mouths. That is not surprising, answered Mary, for it is an art which we have not practiced for more than a few generations. It was Tobold Hornblower of Longbottom in the South Farthing who first grew the true pipeweed in his gardens. About the year eh, 1070, according to our reckoning, how old Toby came to the plant. You do not know your danger, Theoden, interrupted Gandalf. These hobbits will sit on the edge of the ruin and discuss the pleasures of the table or the small doings of their fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers and remoter cousins to the ninth degree if you encourage them with undue patience. Some other time would be more fitting for the history of smoking. Where is Treebeard, Mary? Uh, away on the north side, I believe. He went to get a drink of clean water. Most of the other ants are with him, still busy at their work. Over there. Mary waved his hand toward the steaming lake, and as they looked, they heard a distant rumbling and rattling, as if an avalanche were falling from the mountainside. Far away came a... <laughs> as of horns, blowing triumphantly. And is Orthanc left unguarded? asked Gandalf. Uh, there's the water, said Mary. But Quickbeam and some others are watching it. Not all of those posts and pillars in the plain are of Saruman's planting. Quickbeam, I think, is by the rock, near the foot of the stair. Yes, a tall grey ant is there, said Legolas. But his arms are at his side, and he stands as still as a door tree. What's a door tree? It is past noon, said Gandalf, and we, at any rate, have not eaten since early morning. Yet I wish to see Treebeard as soon as may be. Did he leave me no message, or has plate and bottle driven it from your memory? He left a message, said Mary, and I was coming to it, but I've been hindered by so many other questions. I was to say that if the Lord of the Mark and Gandalf will ride to the northern wall, they'll find Treebeard there, and he'll welcome them. I may add that they also will find food of the best there. It was discovered and selected by your humble servants. He bowed. <laughs> that, that is better, he said. Well, Theoden, will you ride with me to find Treebeard? We must go round about, but that is not far. When you see Treebeard, you will learn much, for Treebeard is Fangorn and the eldest and chief of the Ents, and when you speak with him you will hear the speech of the oldest of all living things. I will come with you, said Theoden. Farewell, my hobbits. May we meet again in my house. There you shall sit beside me and tell me all that your hearts desire, the deeds of your grandsires as far as you can reckon them, and we will speak also of Tobold the Old and his herb lore. Farewell, the hobbits bowed low. So, that's the king of Rohan, said Pippin in an undertone. Fine old fellow, very polite. 
And there we have it, folks. The end of our second and final chapter for the day. Um, our third and final chapter, if you if you include Sherlock from earlier today. So, uh, everybody, I do hope that this schedule will work all right for folks, including myself, because I can definitely feel I'm a bit more fatigued than I was before. But, you know, part of that may be just uh, getting used to it. That's all right. Everybody, it has been grand today. Missy says, I'm loving this book. Jem says, Sam, go get some tea. I may after this. We'll see. I've got some honeybush tea uh, uh, hidden around someplace. Um, but uh, Orly Rose says, again, with the wonderful and evocative writing, quote, a graveyard of the unquiet dead, end quote. Just excellent. Excellent. And yes, indeed. Um, it is a... Uh, is well described. I, I will say it's a bit curious that we got such a strong description of Orthanc as a place, uh, and of just you know the the uh, this this Isengard in general. But um, it it seems like we got more of a description of Helm's Deep in passing than we did in uh, as, as sort of like a standing fact, right? In this one, it was very much established. Like, okay, here's how. Orthanc and Isengard looked under Saruman. Here we go. And then we sort of caught back up with the action and discovered that, oh, it's not quite how it looked in those days. But the the the, the description that we get of Helm's Deep, it seems to be more concerned with the geography only as it relates to the action at hand. So when someone is, is uh, you know, Defending a wall, we'll get a little bit of scene description as to, okay, here's what's below the wall, here's what's above the wall, here's a staircase that goes to this other place that we've mentioned. But it's it's very sort of parceled out throughout the description of the action that's happening, the defenses mounting, that sort of thing. It's interesting. Sanders says, this is a refreshing ending of the chapter. This battle now feels winnable. And I like that, Sander. I like that every single time we have walked away from a conflict in these books so far, um, uh, Sanders got a really great point. Uh, every single chapter um, seemingly ends on having escaped by the barest of hairs, right? Whether it's, um, uh, you know, escaping Bree at just the right moment or um, uh, 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 being drawn into the last homely house, Elrond's place. Uh, whose name escapes me for some reason right now. Hold on. Rivendell? Why does that sound wrong? No, I think that's right. Um, being drawn into Rivendell at just the right moment as these uh, <laughs> as these black riders are, are uh, charging over the hills and wielding their terrible weapons. All of this, all this kind of comes together to contribute to a, a sense of like, at no point are we sort of on our guard. We're always on our back foot. We are always at a loss. We are always just barely in time to save part of something. Never in time to save the whole thing. And yes, I think we, we, we must admit that there is great ruin around and great, uh, great numbers of wounded at Helm's Deep. But at the same time, Helm's Deep itself is salvageable. This isn't like the rending of the um, uh, of the fellowship, right? Where you know Gandalf is dead and gone. Um, the fellowship is broken up. Some of our members are gone off on their own to an incredibly dangerous quest, and we kind of can't, but very much shouldn't go with them. That's a hard decision. I mean, that's a hard enough grief right there. Uh, but also, some other members of our party have been captured by you know some of the most despicable 
soldiers of the most despicable army that we know of and will suffer greatly under them. Now, finally, we do get a chapter where we end it, a couple of chapters, in fact, right in a row here, wherein we find in the first, uh, you know, in the first chapter that Helm's Deep is going to survive. The people inside it are wounded, but will survive, and they will rebuild the walls. And then we get to, you know, the the, uh, the 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 stronghold, this sort of bunker of one of our greatest enemies. And we find, as we roll up, well, it looks like someone took care of it for us. Exciting times indeed. Party Spade says, getting Hobbit humor back in is great. Yes, indeed. It is, it's so nice to see Pippin and Merry here. And what a great scene of them just sort of like, you know, sitting here lounging in the the absolute wreckage all around them. And just like, oh, smoking a pipe, um, uh, having, their, <laughs> having their food, uh, having a little something to drink, just lazing about. And it is a, it is a, a welcome, it's a welcome sort of break from the action as it has been. But it's also a welcome kind of respite for these characters who we really we really love these two right we don't we don't like all the bad stuff that has happened to Mary and Pippin so far um, and as such knowing that we are coming upon them after a sort of indeterminate amount of, indeterminate amount of time where they've essentially been on a little vacation that's got it that's just it's just nice it, it does our hearts some good to know that there is good happening still in the world someplace um, yeah, Gwendonk, you are going to have a chance to learn a decent bit about Helm's Deep and what that whole situation is. Y'all, thank you so much for being here with me tonight. I love you. I will be seeing you all um, not quite as soon as it has been in the past, not, not quite as soon as, a, as on Tuesday, but uh, right now my streaming schedule is Wednesdays and Thursdays, and then, you know, intermittent, uh, you know, kind of craft, intermittent crafting stream. Um, uh, often on the late night, I I'm also like I, I keep finding myself looking at Oblivion and saying I would love to get to some Oblivion, but then at the same time like I'm trying to reorganize my office and I'm still working on Silver Bullet and I've, I'm planning for a number of campaigns, but um, but uh, my regular streams you will find me here Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific time for Side Cannons, uh, the tabletop RPG wing of Sidecar Stories. We have uh, we, we're back into it over there, folks. Um, I believe next Wednesday will be a Spout Lore stream, and then the week after that is going to be another adventure stream because we're doing A and B weeks, uh, sort of alternating back and forth to give us time to update that information that we learn throughout the campaign and uh, just sort of you know check in, see how people are doing with it. I think we have, frankly, equal fun in the Spout Lore streams as we do in the actual Adventure streams. That's kind of how it is for me anyway. Um, but, y'all, uh, that's Wednesdays. On Thursdays now, so Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific time for uh, for the Side Cannons stream. And then Thursdays, 1 p.m. for Vintage Sidecar, 4 p.m. for Flying Sidecar. Uh, of course, if you want to get pings and notices about that, head over to Discord. Go to the Tags channel, and you can decide the things that you get pings about. All right? Uh, so if you choose Vintage Sidecar, for instance, you'll get pinged twice for a stream. You'll get pinged two hours before just to remind you, hey, it's happening on this day and at this time. Uh, and then once as we go live, um, if you select the Lord of the Rings, you will get notified about that. If you select... Um, 
Um, I think I need a more formal one for the tabletop RPG stuff. So, uh, Sander, if you wouldn't mind, I would love um, for you to add that option. Because uh, I know I've got it, like, in... Oh, wait, do I already have it? I might already have it. I, I think I already have it. I've just been using the wrong ping. Hold on. I almost definitely do. Watch watch me be a real goof. Yep, it's in there. Tabletop RPGs. Never mind. I've just been using the interest tag like a goober. Okay. Um, all right. I will fix that, though. I will fix that. Um, uh, and with that, let me just say, hey, thanks, Sander. <laughs> Thank you, as usual, um, for uh, managing the Discord and such so well. Everybody... Thank you a ton for being here. That is the end of my night. I love y'all, and I will see you later on.